All right, we're going to go ahead and get started here. I've got a lot. I'm trying to cram into 45 minutes here. <clears throat> Come on in. Should be some notes on the back. A couple weeks ago, James asked me, he's like, hey, I'm going to be gone. Can you fill in? Um, you're just going to be on the Day of Atonement. He's like, that, that's all you're going to have. And I was like, oh, yeah, man, that'd be great. That'd be a lot of fun. That's kind of like the main point of Leviticus. And then last week, he's like, hey, I messed up. So it's, I'm actually doing that. You're doing the rest of the book. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm on the hook. So I guess I'm doing it. So we're going to be in Leviticus, going to the end of the book, 17 to 27. And then in the next couple of weeks, I think James is going to be wrapping up, kind of tying in Leviticus with um, the New Testament. So that's what's coming in the next couple of weeks. I have to, I have to shamelessly plug um, some, some books and some resources here. I, I always think there's with Equipping Hour, is we're trying to equip you guys to understand the Bible better and, and do some, maybe some homework on your own. Um, I will shamelessly plug this book until the day I die, Dominion and Dynasty. Um, I think it is the best book on the narrative of the Old Testament, of just what's going on progressively throughout the Old Testament. Um, if you're ever like, hey, it's hard to understand, or I'm, I'm tripping up on this part, just come talk to me, because I love this book. I will chew your ear out <laughs> talking about this book. Um, but he does a great job just moving through the books. So what I did in preparation for this, I just went to his section on Leviticus, and it just gave me, okay, here's, here's where we're at in the story, and here's what's going on. So that would be um, a, a number one resource that I would say um, it's not as in-depth as the main book that James has been using, um, the, the Morales book, which is kind of what we've been, he's been basing his chapters and um, he's been basing his um, Sunday school titles off of that book. That, that's really in-depth. That's like 250 pages just on Leviticus. This is like three pages on Leviticus. So it's a lot more concise and it gets you going down the right path. So if after this class you're like, man, I want to learn more about Leviticus. That's where I would start. And then, you know, there's a lot of other good resources. There's all kinds of um, um, things you can find online. Uh, my professor at Masters, Abner Chow, he has all his uh, lectures for free online. I went back and listened to his one or two on Leviticus, and I was having flashbacks to my glory days at college. And I was like, wow, this is so good. Um, those are online. Those are excellent. Those are excellent. You know, an hour and a half just on Leviticus, and that guy knows his Bible. So there's all kinds of resources out there. Um, just something I wanted to plug before we got going. That, that's where I'm getting a lot of my material from, and also if you want more, come talk to me. Uh, before we do that, before we jump in, get some context and some review, let me pray. Lord, we ask that you would bless this time. Um, that as we review much of Leviticus, as we look to the end of the book, um, that we would more accurately, more fully understand your word, uh, that we would see what you've accomplished for us on our behalf, that the law which condemns us, um, that you fulfilled in our place, that um, we no longer um, look to these regulations and ceremonies as something that we have to do, but we look to them and see the perfection of your work and what you have accomplished on our behalf. So I pray that um, even if um, there's just one or two things that we glean um, from this morning, that we would take it to our hearts 
it would radically affect our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So I've got a lot of notes. Typically, I'm like a half a page kind of guy, you know, like I cut the notes. But James is doing like, you know, these packets, staples. I was like, all right, I will uh, throw all kinds of stuff in there. Um, So I just want to give you guys some context, okay? I need context. Anytime I jump into anywhere in the Old Testament, where are we at? What are we doing? Okay? So that's kind of that, um, you know, box thing that took me a while to figure out. I'm not a techie guy, but it's there, right? And everything, the the chapters and summary should be correct, okay? But but if you kind of start in Genesis, right? You have in in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, I think you have these, these verses in there too. You have this command, God has created everything, be fruitful and multiply, Okay? He's created man in his image, and his goal is that they would perfectly reflect his glory in his image and fill the whole earth, such that you have an earth filled with his glory. Okay? It's actually very significant for when you come over to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, you pretty much have the same thing going on, as the earth is filled with his glory, so you see a redemption of the Edenic plan. That's his creational agenda. Then you come to Genesis 3.15, we have the, the, the problem of sin, right? But God's promise for a seed, for a Messiah who's going to crush the seed of the serpent, he's going to cr- ultimately crush the serpent um, and defeat sin and get us back to that original creational agenda. You have that seed then narrowed down, Genesis 12, right, through to Abraham, okay? So you have the promise of the seed of the woman, Now we know that that seed is going to come through Abraham. These are just some of these verses where you kind of want to familiarize yourself with. I put them down there. Genesis 12, right? That's where that initial promise to Abraham is coming. This promise of land, seed, and blessing. Those three, it's actually very important, um, as we'll soon see. Um, that, That Israel is going to have a great land. There's going to be a specific seed, but also many descendants. Um, you know, as numerous as the stars, that they're going to be a blessing, that they're going to be blessed by God, but not as an end in and of itself, but that they would be a blessing to all the other nations. That's incredibly significant, is that Israel was never just the end. They were to be a blessing to all the other Gentile nations. There's an international purpose to Israel. What we see as you continue throughout Genesis and through Exodus, Israel has a heart problem, Okay. That if God is going to do this work, they're going to need heart surgery because of their sin. We see constant evil and sin and corruption. You come to the end of Genesis and the Joseph narrative, and what does he say? You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. So, so that even in light of all this evil, in light of all this sin, God is still working his sovereign plan. That it's still going according to schedule. You come over to Exodus. And then you have God demonstrating his, his global power over all other gods, all other, all other wannabes, let's just say. He is the only true God. This is how he redeems his people. And he redeems them to be, this is Exodus 19, 5 to 6. I think you have this on there. Another key, another key verse that's picked up in the New Testament. But he redeems them to be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Meaning that they are to be a holy nation. But as a kingdom of priests, that they would intercede for the other nations, right? So it goes back to, the, again, Genesis 12. They're going to be blessed to be a blessing such that all the other nations would come and see. Okay, and then that kind of moves us, Exodus 19, to Mount Sinai, okay? And this is significant. This is why I underlined in that uh, summary box you have, Exodus 19, uh, Numbers 10, 10. 
Once Israel reaches Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, the, the narrative almost just completely grounds to a complete halt. And this is significant. If you think through Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters, we're moving hundreds of years, you know, you could even argue thousands of years really fast. Then it kind of slows down on Abraham. Then when you come to Exodus 19, when Israel reaches the mountain, it just absolutely stops. So from Exodus 19 all the way through Leviticus and through the first 10 chapters of Numbers, Israel is still at Mount Sinai. So, I mean, I mean think about this. You have 57 chapters of Israel at Mount Sinai, 68 chapters before Sinai, 59 chapters after Sinai. Sinai is literally at the very center of the Pentateuch. Does that make sense? Those first five books is Sinai, okay? Which already starts to tell us what's Israel's biggest problem. is not Egypt, not the pagan nations, it's themselves. Sinai is actually a problem. It's pointing them to their sin problem. I just thought that was fascinating, that the, it slows down. They spend 11 months at Sinai. When you, when you pick back up in Numbers 10, 11, it's been 11 months, and we've just been camping out there. All of Leviticus, we're still at Sinai, and God is speaking to his people. Sinai is the biggest problem because the law reveals their sin, right? Galatians 3.19 makes that very clear, that why then the law? It was added because of transgressions to explicitly reveal sin. So, again, this is all just some context, all some review. Key question going into Leviticus, how can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? How can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? If you look to um, Exodus 40, real quick, very end of Exodus. Exodus 40, verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, Verse 35, and get this, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. He could not enter because of the holiness of God and his own sinfulness. That, that's the problem. How can this holy God dwell with the sinful people? Leviticus, okay? And just by the way, this is some nerdy stuff, but Leviticus 1.1 begins with, in Hebrew, basically the word and. I don't know how else to say this, but in Hebrew, especially in narrative, you're going to see the word and at the beginning of basically every sentence. And this happened, and this happened at, at, the end of, at the beginning of every verse, sorry. And this happened, and this happened. What that's trying to say is this is all just continuing. So I don't know about you guys, but for me, I come to, you know, my Old Testament. It's like, okay, Exodus. Well, now I've got the book of Leviticus. It's just completely different. I, I just subconsciously do that. No, these are connected. These all go together, the Pentateuch. Moses is writing this. This is a continuous narrative that he is writing, okay? How can we dwell with the holy God? Okay, are we on the same page? Good? Okay. All right. So that's kind of that, that summary I, I have on that first page there. Uh, just a few more things on Leviticus. I, I'd say this. It's an effective model. What I mean by that is that it's not permanent. You actually see this in Galatians, that passage I mentioned, is that he says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed, the promised seed, which uh, Paul makes very clear is Christ. So we're not under the Levitical law anymore. I think James is going to hit on this a lot more. Okay, we're not under this. This is not permanent, but this is a, a, an effective model of what God does in salvation. Okay, 
We're going to see substitutionary atonement. We see that very clearly in the Day of, uh, day of Atonement. Uh, we see holiness. That's the central theme. We see worship. It's all here. And in fact, we, we don't fully understand our New Testament. We don't fully understand, especially what's going on in Hebrews. If you don't have a good handle on Leviticus, Hebrews is not going to make any sense. If, if you don't understand Hebrews, read Leviticus. Go back there. It's not justification by works of the law in the Old Testament and then justification by faith in the New Testament. It's always been by faith. Always been by faith. Turn to uh, Jeremiah 7. This is fascinating. This is fascinating to me. Jeremiah 7, verse 22. Jeremiah 7, verse 22. For in the day, this is God speaking through Jeremiah the prophet, why he's um, indicting Israel for their sin. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. Okay, just stop right there. What's wrong with Yahweh's charge against them? And you're like, wait, what's wrong with God's word? No, no, I'm not saying, just, it's kind of a trick question. What's wrong with that? I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. You've been here the last couple of weeks. You're going, yeah, you did. That's what Leviticus is talking about, burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's not Jeremiah's point. Keep reading. But this command I gave them, obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, key terminology there, and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. See, see this whole system has to be acted on in faith. Does that make sense? It's not just a magic system where you just do the sacrifice and you're good to go. It has to be acted on in faith. You have to obey, believe, and trust that Yahweh is who he says he is, that he really is holy. I put in a quote from uh, Jim Hamilton. I, I thought it was just excellent in summarizing this. The Levitical system operates only by faith. Israel must believe that Yahweh really is in the tabernacle, that he really is holy, that sin and uncleanness really do make it dangerous to be near Yahweh. And that the prescribed sacrifice really will atone for sin. All of this must be taken on in faith. That, that's still here in Leviticus. That's Jeremiah's point in chapter 7. It's almost like this. Leviticus is the exit sign when you're in a building on fire. You don't just sit there and go, wow, that's a, that, that, that exit sign is so cool. I'm just going to look at that exit sign. Wow, what an exit sign. No, the exit sign, you, you act upon it. It's pointing you to something greater, your need to exit the burning building, right? That's what Leviticus is doing. It's an effective model at doing that. It's pointing to our real need of rescue, our real need of redemption. It's pointing you to salvation. You have to believe it and act upon it. It's not the end. It's the means to the end, okay? Now, Leviticus, uh, we're kind of going to slowly walk through this. I know I'm taking a lot of time, but I think this is important, right? Leviticus, this whole system, it's about holiness because God is holy. And you work through this that the way you become holy must be holy. It's all got to be holy. Holy, holy, holy. We're going to sing that song later. But it's all about holiness. Not only is the goal of holiness dwelling with God, the means of holiness is dwelling with God. 
It's not only the goal to be with him by being holy. The way you get to him is, uh, excuse me, the, the means of holiness is dwelling with God. It's all got to be holy. Listen to Exodus 31, verse 13. Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that, and this is key, I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. So who makes them holy? God. It all goes back to him. He is the one who actually makes them holy. And his sanctifying presence and dwelling among them, that's what makes them holy. And we're going to see more of this in Leviticus 17. So I'm going to quickly walk through the first 16 chapters, uh, not all of them, but just to get us back in, in context of, of where we're going with chapter 17, okay? So if you want to turn back to Leviticus 1, I'll hit some key points and then keep moving along. Here's what's significant, and, and I, had to, I was reminding Natalie of this last week. Leviticus is not just about dealing with sin. It is not just about dealing with sin, and particularly the sacrifices, okay? Look in Leviticus 1. Let me turn there, actually, because I'm in Leviticus 17. Leviticus 1, 2, and 3, right? We have these, these sacrifices, the, the burnt offering, the, um, or the ascension offering, as James was calling it. You have laws for grain offerings and laws for peace offerings, okay? In Leviticus 2 and 3, those offerings do not mention sin or atonement at all. You guys catch that? The, the grain offering... And the peace offerings do not mention sin or atonement at all. And I would actually argue, as a lot of people do, in, in chapter 1, the ascension offering, it mentions atonement, right? So verse 4, Leviticus 1, 4, it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. It, uh, the word atonement has a semantic range. What that just means is it, it can mean a number of things. Like the word trunk, okay? Do you mean elephant trunk? Do you mean tree trunk? Do you mean... Uh, you know, some people like their suitcase, that's a trunk, car trunk. Like trunk can mean a lot of things, right? It doesn't mean all of them in, in one setting. One, when you use it, when I mention that trunk, I'm pointing to that tree out there. I don't point at that and you guys go, oh, he's talking about that car trunk right there. There's no car trunk right there, right? It's the same thing with atonement. It has a semantic range. It can mean a number of things. I would argue in this passage, he's not talking about making atonement, dealing with sin, but actually talking about consecration. Now, how would I make that point? Well, actually, because later on in the, um, in the burnt off, or excuse me, in the sin offerings in chapter 4 and verse 5, the, um, the other sin offering, is that there's language of um, he'll make atonement for sin and be forgiven. There's a lot more there. So all I'm trying to say is that those first three sacrifices, those first three offerings, don't deal with sin. They're actually for worship. They're worship offerings, which I think this is significant because I think Leviticus, oh, it's all about sin. It's not just about sin. It's actually dealing with right worship. It's more than just sin. It's about holiness and sanctification, not only dealing with sin, but also dealing with righteous worship. Does that make sense? It's not just about removing sin. There's more to Leviticus than just sin. This is another interesting point. Leviticus 3.16 it's funny, I was just rereading re through Leviticus this last week, and I was like, man, there's so many interesting things to just hit on. Leviticus 3.16. It's easy to remember because it's not John 3.16. It's Leviticus 3.16. The very end of this, all fat is Yahweh's. 
you might, you might be like, who cares? <laughs> okay? But think about this. This is significant. Some people today, they're weird, but they like their steak with a lot of fat on it because they think the fat is the best part. They're weird people. Um, but, but especially going back to Leviticus, we're thinking about ancient Israel. The fat is the best part. Okay? That, that's the, the choice offering. That, that's the best part of the sacrifice. Well, God is saying here, the best part, the fat, that's mine. Okay? Now think about this. Why throughout do the prophets make such a big deal about fat? Over and over and over. Because of Leviticus 3.16. They're going back to the law that's been laid down. Listen to some of these verses. Isaiah 1.11. This is God indicting Israel because of their sin. He says this. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. So God's making the point. You can't just do the sacrifices and think everything's fine, right? That's his point. I, I have no delight in burnt offerings and in the, in the fat of well-fed beasts because you have a sin problem of the heart. That's Isaiah's point. Listen to this, Ezekiel 34. I, th I was like, wow, this is fascinating. Ezekiel 34, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds, the leaders of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? Verse 3. You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Now, if you don't know Leviticus 3.16, you have no idea why he's talking, what's the big deal about eating the fat ones? They're stealing glory from God. They're stealing what rightfully belongs to him. Does that make sense? So, so if you're having trouble understanding Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, a lot of the prophets, what they're doing is not just prophesying about here's what's going to happen way in the future. A lot of it is they're condemning Israel because of the law. They're going back to the law. They're going back to Leviticus. They're going back to the law re-given in Deuteronomy and saying, you guys have been unfaithful. So, was that interesting to anyone? Leviticus 3.16, remember it. Not John 3.16, Leviticus 3.16. All right. So, these are their worship offerings, not just for dealing with sin. They're about being holy and obeying and loving God. Flip over to chapter 9. We're going to move a little bit quicker here. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22 you have this, the glory of God returning. You have this epic event, Leviticus 9.22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. He came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now keep reading. Chapter 10. We know this. Now Nadab and Abihu. Here we have quite the contrast of the holiness of God and the glory of God being displayed. We think, wow, we just had this epic event. This is awesome. The glories, you know, they're falling on their faces and, and shouting. Then chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. 
and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified, and Aaron held his peace. God is holy. You have to approach him the right way. Chow said this, I thought it was really good and also true. If you don't offer the right sacrifice, you become the sacrifice. It's basically what happens right there. God will be treated as holy because as Isaiah 6 says, he is holy, holy, holy. He is absolute perfection, the definition of holiness. Okay, Leviticus 11 to 15. But already, the reason why I mention that is that if you think everything's going great in Leviticus, wow, this is going to work. This is going to get us back to the presence of God. This is going to get us back to Eden. The author, Moses, is putting in, uh, there's still problems here. That's what's going on in, in Leviticus 10. Nadab and Abihu. There's still a problem here. They have a sin problem. Okay? You come down to uh, 11 to 15, clean and unclean. Okay? It's not righteous and abomination and sin. That's actually significant. Clean and unclean. God is saying that even in areas of preference, God is still holy and you will obey him. You will obey. You have uh, food in Leviticus 11. This is something public that everyone sees. You have uh, issues of birth in Leviticus 12, more specific, right? Even in matters where everyone does it, everyone eats, okay? Public areas, you need to be holy. Well, even in areas of birth, well, it's just women, but it's still public. You still need to be holy, right? Then you come down to leprosy and, and bodily fluids, Leviticus 13 to 15. Well, even areas where it's private and not everyone knows, you still need to be holy. So where everyone knows and where everyone doesn't, what do you need to be? Holy, right? Holy, holy, holy. That's the point of Leviticus. Then we come to the Day of Atonement, which James told me I was going to be talking about. Um, this is the reset button. He mentioned this. I, I thought this was really, really helpful. This is the reset button on the whole system. Because hopefully you're, you're reading through this, maybe you're reading through Leviticus on your own, and you're like, man, how can they do all this? Like, this is almost like too much. Yeah, that's the point. They're not going to be able to. It's, to, it's the exit sign showing them their need of something greater. And this is significant. Leviticus is anticipatory. It's pointing forward to something else. We'll see more of that. But in the Day of Atonement, it's, it's the reset button. Because think about this. This is another. Fu, have you listened to Chow's lectures on Leviticus? Okay, yeah. You might be like, he's stealing this from someone. Yes, I am. Um, he mentioned this. Like, think about this. You have, you know, your tent of meeting. You just did the Day, the day of Atonement. And then the day after, you know, you set up the tent. And then, you know, it's 2 a.m. in the morning, and a lizard crawls in the tent. And he crawls all over the Ark of the Covenant. It's like the whole thing's unclean now. But no one knew about it, because it was at 2 a.m., and you don't have, you know, the little lizard guards, you know, out front, right? This is why the Day of Atonement is important, because you need to reset. You need to start over. It's kind of like if you have, you know, like a, you know, Dell. You know how you always have to restart the computer? You know, it's like turn it off and on again, because it's a junk computer. Um, that's what the Day of Atonement is. It's the reset on the whole system. It's the pinnacle of Leviticus. It's the pinnacle of the Pentateuch. And that's why on that one page I gave you kind of that, how it's kind of a chiasm going up and then going down. With, I think sometimes those can be a little too cute, but I, I think a lot of guys have a point there of the Day of Atonement being the high point. And one of the reasons why is you see the sin of the entire community being dealt with, right, by two goats right? You have one goat that is sacrificed and offered to God to deal with sin, and then you have the other goat as a scapegoat, right? So you have the, the priests, they lay their hands on the goat, which is also a sign of that our sins cannot be in the presence of God. 
He has to be taken away, right? This is another thing I stole from Chow. I thought this was hilarious. I, I don't know where he's getting this from, but I'm trusting it's true. Um, he's talking about how sometimes what the priests would do is they would actually chuck the goat off of a cliff. Because think about this. You know, you're, you're, in, the, you're in the sanctuary, and, uh, you know, you, you killed the one goat, and the priest is talking to the people. It's like, your sins have been removed. They've been taken away. And then as soon as he's saying that, you know, like the scapegoat comes walking back in. You're just like, oh, our sins. You know, it's like, so what they would do to not have that chance is just chuck the goat off a cliff. Like, it's like, it ain't coming back, um, which is hilarious. Um, but, but you even see, right, and, and Hebrews makes this point. We'll, we'll talk, I'll talk about it a little bit. This is anticipatory. It's pointing to something else. Just by the very nature that they had to keep doing this over and over, it shows that sin is not being fully dealt with, right? It's pointing to something else, okay? But we see this whole package of substitutionary atonement because of the one sin of another, one dying in the place for that sin. And then we see scapegoat, sin permanently taken away. This is how God deals with sin. Nothing has changed. We come over to the New Testament. Sin cannot be in the presence of God. It has to be dealt with. Now we finally come to Leviticus 17. You're like, thank goodness. We're going to try and get through this really fast. I think it's important to have that context. And also I thought it's kind of what I was going to talk about. But that's okay. Leviticus 17. We, we kind of turn a corner here. And I have on your notes there, the holiness code. A lot of people talk about that. The holiness code. This is kind of moving to more uh, moral, social aspects of the whole community. How does the community live? I'm going to try and hit some of these um, summary verses along the way. So have your Bibles. I'm going, to, I'm going to move pretty quick. But again, it's important. Israel's only source of holiness is who? God. God is the one who sanctifies them. Israel's laws did not make the people holy, but rather prepared them to be made holy by Yahweh's presence. God is the one who makes them holy. It's not a magic formula. Leviticus 20, verses 7 to 8, Consecrate, set apart, dedicate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And I think I have about four or five references there. I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. You see that over and over and over. Okay, Leviticus 17. It's an interesting chapter. It deals specifically with blood. Talking about blood, maybe you've heard the saying, you know, the life is in the blood. Maybe you guys have heard that. That's Leviticus 17. But if you go to Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Verse 14, for the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. So, so blood is very clearly tied as a symbol to life, okay? This is significant because when you come over to the New Testament, why do we make such a big deal about blood? Why do we sing, hopefully, good songs that talk about blood? Because it's about the life. And it's because Leviticus makes a big deal about the blood. Listen to Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law, going back to this, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? 
But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. If you haven't read Leviticus, that, those four verses make no sense. You have no idea what he's talking about. He's going back to Leviticus. The Levitical system was always a model. It's pointing forward and anticipating something greater. Hopefully, James is going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks. Flip over to Leviticus 18. There's so much in these chapters, I'm not going to be able to hit everything. Leviticus 18, verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where they just came from, where you lived. And you shall do not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And then he lists all kinds of sexual immorality in Egypt and in Canaan. Right? So, so their enjoyment of and dwelling with God and their mission to the nations, to the Gentiles, is contingent upon what? The, the H word we've been using a bunch. Holiness. They must be holy. If you don't know the answer, it's probably holiness in Leviticus. It's reflected in the way they live. If they are holy, they enjoy the blessings of living under the Lord's rule. Leviticus 18, verse 24. These are some of these summary verses that really tie together what's going on in the legislation. Leviticus 18, 24. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. That's significant, because it's not just Israel, right? So Leviticus is already anticipating, what, that Gentile nations will come and be a part and rightly worship God. Do you guys see that? The sojourner or the stranger who, the native or stranger who sojourns among you. So it's never been just Israel, but that they would be a blessing to the other nations, and the other nations would come and be a part. Leviticus 19, verse 2, you're probably familiar with this. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. We see Peter pick that up in 1 Peter 1, right? 1 Peter 1, 15 to 16. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter's drawing on Leviticus and saying, God's people now need to reflect the same holiness then. Leviticus 19, 18, you know this as well. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Right? Jesus picks that up as a summary of the law, does he not? Right? In the Gospels. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. And second is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's where he's getting it from. Leviticus 19, 18. Leviticus 20, verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. He said that a couple times, like the land vomiting you out. What is he talking about? Leviticus 25. Flip over there real quick. Leviticus 25, 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. So who has the land? God. 
Not the holiness answer, it's the other answer. God, right? God has the land. That's what he's saying. For the land to vomit you out, he's saying, I'm going to do that. I'm going to cast you out because of your sin. Verse 23, back in Leviticus 20. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I'm driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. Verse 26, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Okay? So, so all these laws, I'm going to try and summarize a little bit. All these laws, sexual immorality, sacrifices, offerings, you know, regulations against child sacrifices, festivals, feasts, stoning necromancers, okay? all this stuff, it's not just random laws and legislation where he's just like, uh, sure, I'll just do that. No, it's about combating a sinful society with holiness. It's fighting against sin. How do we be holy? That's what it's about. It's not just random legislation. And that's hopefully, you know, some of these um, um, summary, um, you know, graph things that took me forever to make help you with that. Going back, okay, here's what these laws are talking about. I got to move a little quicker here. Leviticus 21 to 22, we turn a corner talking about priests. Same thing there. Um, those who serve the Holy Lord must be perfectly holy. So you're going to see like two or three times in there. Leviticus 22.10, I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Who makes them holy? God. Leviticus 22.16, I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Who makes them holy? God. Significant, because when we come over to the New Testament, who makes us holy? God, <laughs> right? It's the same thing. It's not, you know, there's, there's not a lot of, difference between those big principles. God is the one who makes us holy. Leviticus 22, verse 31, you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. He's tying this in to Exodus. This is all continuing together, okay? You have, and this is where I have that other chart, Leviticus 23 to 25, Okay, so Morales takes Leviticus 24. I just didn't want to spend a ton of time on this. He really sees Leviticus 24 as the center to Leviticus 17 to 27. Um, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I'm not going to say I disagree with him. Um, I just didn't want to bog you guys down with all the reasons why um, he thinks that. So you can go back and look. Um, but, but you kind of see um, Leviticus 24, 1 to 9. You have this ceremony with the, with the bread and the priests and stuff like this. And he really sees this as another event, kind of like the end of Leviticus 9, where the glory of the Lord fills a tabernacle and people are like, you know, glorifying God. He kind of sees that again as continuing. So that's what I have down. If you see crisis, Leviticus 17.25, you see also sojourner crisis. So Leviticus 24, verse 10, now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shalomith, 
the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan, and they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them, and it ends up that they stone him. So what he's saying is that because you have another crisis, kind of like Leviticus 10 with Nadab and Abihu, that you're seeing kind of this, this pinnacle of this section. So if you want more about that, I'd be more than happy to talk to you about that. Um, that's what that, that kind of chart is going on there. Um, i got to move quickly here. There's a couple more things. Leviticus 23, back to, um, you know, these festivals, these feasts. They're not just about, you know, like a bunch of parties. Again, it's not random. It's not parties, right? It's that even in their calendar, even in what they do as a people, it's to be holy. I have more of this, I think, on your notes. Holy convocations. Look at how many times it's used. These are holy festivals. They are designated as to the Lord. So even their calendar, everything that they do is to revolve around what? It's that H word. Holiness. Holy. That, yes, if you get one thing this morning, it's about holiness, right? Then you come to Leviticus 26, and I'll wrap up here. Leviticus 26. This is, this is vitally important. Moses is going to pick up on this again in Deuteronomy. But you have the promise for blessing if they obey, and you have the promise of curse if they disobey. Okay, So if they obey, if Israel is going to do this, they will be blessed. If they don't, they're going to be cursed. Okay, This is the covenant being sworn in. They are going to do this. God is going to hold up his side, and the people are going to hold up theirs. If they don't, they will be cursed. Okay, It's an application, essentially, of this whole book, Leviticus 26, an application of everything that's been laid down. Okay. Look at Leviticus 26, verse 11. Leviticus 26, 11. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Now, if, if you've been paying attention, that draws us back to what? Eden, yes, where God did dwell among man. So he's saying, if you keep this, We'll get back to that, basically, okay? I'm sure James is going to pick this up, but this is what Paul actually significantly picks up on in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Talking about the church. As God said, and this is quoting from Leviticus 26, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So we even see how Paul is picking this up. In developing that, right? So it's not only pointing back to Genesis 3, it's pointing forward. But if you've noticed, there's a lot more promises of cursing for disobedience than promise for blessing, right? So you have uh, Leviticus 26, I think I have these verses down for you. Leviticus 26, 1 to 13, that's only 13. And then the curses for disobedience, 14 to 39, that's 25. So it's even Leviticus is ending on a note of what's probably going to happen. The disobedience, the sin, right? And they're going to be cursed because of it. This is another point that I was um, just meditating on a little bit. Um, it's a little graphic. I mean, it's definitely not PG, but Leviticus 26, 29, he says, you shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. That's a, that's a promise of curse if they disobey. And then Moses picks that up in Deuteronomy, says the same thing to the second generation. You will do this. And then listen to Lamentations chapter 4, verse 10. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. 
They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The curses came to fruition. This is after the destruction of Jerusalem, right? That's what Jeremiah is talking about. You guys see how this all fits in together? It's not just random curses. What God said would happen because of your sin did happen, right? But he doesn't end just on a negative note. There's still hope. Look at Leviticus 26, verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, verse 42, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land. So he, he's going back to Genesis. He's going back to Genesis 12, that he's still going to bring this promise to fruition. Verse 43, but the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. Verse 45, but I will, for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Israel has a heart problem. They have a problem with sin. And Moses is going to pick this up in Deuteronomy 30. That's another verse I think I section I have in there. And he's going to say, this work of the new covenant, this work of the heart, I'm actually going to do the heart surgery. You can't do it on your own. You need the Lord. God himself is going to perform that open heart surgery. And then we come over to Hebrews 8, and we see that God has done that work. He has brought about the new covenant. Okay, I am out of time, but maybe you're wondering, hey, Leviticus 27 is still there. That's kind of like an appendix um, it's significant. 25, Leviticus 25 and 27 are the only chapters in Leviticus that use the word redemption. Um, and basically what you have in um, Leviticus 27, the chapter is about vows and reminding Israel that, you know, everything they have is the Lord's. You know, don't make vows rashly um, is basically what you have going on there. If you want to talk more about that, I'd be more than happy to. I'm out of time. Leviticus it's pointing us to and lays down the necessity of holiness, right? Holiness, to dwell with God. And Hebrews is going to pick up on that. And that brings us to the, the wonder of the new covenant and the work that Christ has done in his sanctifying presence of the Holy Spirit. So I'm out of time. Hopefully you got something from that and you understand Leviticus a little bit better. You're dismissed.